so this week we're going to take a big picture look back at Paul's specific focus on the family and on the household. And we saw that beginning in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, onward through chapter 4, verse 1. So we, we spent uh, about three weeks going through that in, in some detail. I want to go back today and I want to just kind of look at a big picture view of what Paul was doing in writing those lines in his letter to the church there at Colossae. Then I want to look at Paul's closing theme for his letter where he instructs the believers in three areas of their spiritual life. We're going to talk about one of those areas today. He instructs them in the area of prayer, in the area of our walk or how we live and conduct ourselves, and in the area of our speech. Uh, So next week, we're going to look at those two last areas of spiritual of our spiritual life, and we're also going to look at Paul's closing, his personal greetings and messages that he gives to the saints, um, which could be really easy to pass over, but I think it's, it's something important because it gives us uh, a glimpse into the life of this apostle, but not just his life. I think sometimes as we preach through books of the Bibles and we study through books of the Bible, We get caught up with all the theology and we forget that these are real people writing to friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ. Real people writing to other real people. And they had real relationships and real struggles in those relationships. And so we want to look at that as well as encouragement to us because... We're having the same struggles in many of our own relationships and in our own lives and in the culture around us. All right, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read through verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey. Remember that word means slaves. Slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains 
that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask in your grace and your mercy that you would teach us today by your spirit as we break open your word, as we eat this bread of life, as we, Lord, wash our minds with this pure water of your word. Lord, mold us and shape us and change us. We ask that you would indeed conform us to the image of Christ, that we would be your witnesses in this in this dark world, that we would be bright lights to shine through that darkness and to show people the way, the only way, the only hope, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask this in that glorious name. Amen. So I want to go back and I want to look at the end of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4, and I want to look at Paul's focus on families and on households. And I want to briefly, um, I want to briefly touch on the importance of this focus Paul gives to families and to households. We've gone through these verses in some depth, but I want to go back and, and just kind of look at a big picture view of why Paul's attention to the family is so very important uh, for us. It was important then, and it is most certainly important now. In the nine verses from Colossians 3, verse 18, to Colossians 4, verse 1, in those nine verses, Paul takes the time to focus specific commands to specific groups in the church. First, he addresses certain members of the family. So he specifically addresses those members of the family, and then he addresses certain individuals and households in commanding both slaves and masters. So in his command to slaves and masters, he is speaking to households. So let's talk about families first. In speaking to families, Paul commands wives to submit to their own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. So he qualifies that submission as fitting. He commands husbands to love their wives and not be bitter toward them. I was talking to uh, Dr. Stewart yesterday, and we were talking about how important the family is and uh, how important the family is to the restoration of, of the things that we're seeing destroyed in our culture and in our nation. And I think this is lost on us uh, today in our modern times. Um, I know when I do premarital counseling, um, I do a thing where I'm signed up with the state, and if someone does premarital counseling with me, they get like a substantial discount on their marriage license. And so guess what? A lot of people call me uh, and they want to do premarital counseling, not because they want some good foundation, spiritual foundation for their marriage. They want a, they want a discount on their marriage license. And, and so um, when, when I talk to young couples prior to marriage, I always, I mean, the only thing I have to give them is the gospel. The only thing I have to give them is, is the truth of God's word. 
And, and I always begin right there in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, uh, submitting to one another, or singing uh, to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord. And man, I'm telling you, you can see without fail, 9.5 out of 10 of the women sitting there cringe when they hear those words. And the men are just kind of sitting there like they're not sure what to do. I'm just going to be quiet. And I want that shock value because I want to talk about that. Because there's a reason why God puts this in his word. There's a reason why God says to women, wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord, for it's, it's fitting. It's fitting in the Lord. And all the men like that. Oh, they like that language. Yeah, I want my wife to submit to me. But I was glad to hear that Dr. Stewart agreed with me. He said, you know, uh, women often, or men often think that, you know, yes, my wife's got to submit to me. But what men don't realize is the buck really stops with the man. The responsibility's not on the woman there. The responsibility's on the man. Yes, wife, submit to your husband. Husbands, guess what? You've got to love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And what we don't realize in today's culture is that means really nothing to the culture today. That's antiquated, out-of-date language. Nobody believes that anymore. I can't tell you how often I heard that on June 25th out there at the Gay Pride event. I mean, I guess you believe women are supposed to submit to their husbands, too. Well, actually, yes, because the Bible says that. Oh, oh my gosh. Are you serious? You believe that? Yeah, I believe the Bible. But what they fail to understand is, with that command of submission to the woman is a command of love to the husband. And in Paul's day and in Jesus' day, this was great comfort to a woman. This lie that the, the, the Bible is misogynistic, that the Bible is oppressive to women, is the farthest thing from the truth. This is protection for the woman. Because the command for a husband to love his wife the way Christ loved the church gives great comfort to that wife. Because that tells her that my husband is not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. He's not going to abandon me because Christ doesn't abandon his church. Christ doesn't leave his church. If need be, Christ, and it was needful, Christ died for his church. He died for his bride. And we miss what's really being said here when we read these scriptures from a modern understanding instead of reading and hearing them from a spiritual and a biblical understanding. So he commands husbands to love their wives and not be bitter toward them as a protection, but not just a protection. A husband is really supposed to love his wife. He commands children to obey their parents in all things, 
reminding them that this is pleasing to the Lord and not just their parents. Children, you're not just pleasing your parents when you obey them. You're pleasing the Lord. Obeying your parents is not just about pleasing them. Most importantly, children, obeying your parents is about pleasing the Lord. He commands fathers to not provoke their children, to not discourage them. So we see that Paul focuses on the family and he speaks to those specific members of the family because he's instructing them about building and having healthy families. Then he also speaks to households. So in speaking to certain individuals in certain households, Paul addresses specifically slaves and masters. And he commands each to honor the Lord by honoring one another and doing all that they do, both slave and master, as unto the Lord. And he commands all, whether slave or whether free, to remember that there is one master in heaven for us all. So in his specific commands to wives, husbands, children, and fathers, as well as those commands to slaves and masters, we see Paul emphasizing the importance of the family as well as the entire household, which in that day would have included slaves. So just as it is true today, we need to kind of understand the realities that Paul is addressing in the church. Just as it is true today, there would have been families in the church that had less wealth and fewer means with small households that operated without slaves or servants. Now, when I say small households, I'm not saying fewer children. I'm saying their household operation might have been smaller in scale. Maybe they didn't own any land. Maybe they were fortunate just to have a house to live in. But there also would have been families who would have had greater wealth and more means with larger household operations that would have included slaves and servants. Both of these groups were represented in the church and addressed, not just in this letter, but in all of Paul's letters. So the household is a concept that we're less familiar with today. It's the Greek word oikos, the house or the household. The household and the family were not thought of separately in ancient times. And sometimes we can use those words interchangeably today, my household, and I'm, when I use that term, I can mean my family. But I think in large part, we don't think about households as much as we do families. <clears throat> but in ancient times, there was no real separation between the concept of a family and a household. There might, they may have represented different scales, different sizes, different types of operations, but they were thought of as one. The household obviously included the family, 
as well as all the other persons joined to it. So, for instance, in Abraham's day, when you, when you see the Bible talking about Abraham and his household, that included all of his servants, all of his slaves, as well as his children, his wife. It included everything. Both, both slave, both free, both blood relation and relation in terms of those joined to the operation of the household. And they were to be treated fairly and justly. <clears throat> this is what God is commanding. The family and the household operated as one unit. Both household and family were understood as vitally important to the fabric and the foundation of the culture and the civilization. Civilization as we have known it for the past thousands of years, the fabric of that is the family, the household. That is disappearing today. It's, it's been under attack for a very long time. I, I want to give you good news. It's not going to ultimately disappear. It can't because God created the family. It was the first institution he created. But that doesn't mean that we will not see great harm done to families and households in our own day if we do not pay attention, if we are not vigilant. So the importance of the family <clears throat> is clearly emphasized by Paul in his letters, in this letter specifically. That is also true of all Scripture. The importance of the family is emphasized from the very beginning at creation with one man and one woman forming the first family. One man, one woman formed the first family. Paul understood the family's vital importance in God's purpose. And in addressing families and households, he indicates their great importance in God's plan of redemption. <clears throat> the church is made up of family units represented by individual family members. Whether you're here today with your whole family or whether you're here today as, as, as one member of your family, you represent a family. Immediate and we can go out from there, right? The family was that first institution created by God he created the family because he purposed to create the church. There is no church if there is no family. This is why the Bible calls the church a family. It does that on purpose. And yes, that family is referencing the family you're most familiar with, your own. And it likens the church corporately as the family of God because we are the family of God's wife. We're called brothers and sisters. Remember when Jesus, when they came to Jesus and said, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he said, who is my mother and who is my brother? He said, you are my mother and you are my brother. And this is why the family has been under attack since the beginning of its creation. To build strong churches, we must build strong families. The good news is, 
is that Jesus promised to build his church. He took responsibility for that. He also promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's good news. The Lord charges us to build strong families. And we see that from the very beginning. We see it even when Cain asks God, am I my brother's keeper? And the implied answer is, yes, you certainly are. We see it throughout the scripture. That's why God gave the law and he said, when you walk down the road, talk about this. When you sit at your table, talk about this. Bind it to your forehead. Bind it to your forearm. In other words, in everything you think about, in everything you do, let the word of God, let this law inform you. Teach it to your children, to all your children, from generation to generation to generation. The family, the family is what God created. Strong families create a strong church, and this is exactly why the family is under attack right now. The Lord charges us to build strong families because of Christ. Because of Christ, the church is victorious. He promised that the church would prevail. He promised the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So Jesus has promised... The church is victorious, and in our obedience to Christ, guess what? Our families are also victorious. I want to point out Paul's focus on the family dynamic as well as the household. I wanted to do that to remind us today how important the family is. We all represent families here, and we all represent families that are being attacked by our culture. We all represent families that face various struggles. We need to have our hope in Christ. We need to know God's promise for his church and for families. For the family of God and for your family and for my family. And we need to have the hope that if we obey Christ, then our families will be strong. I'm not saying they won't struggle. I'm not saying there won't be opposition. I'm not saying there won't be dynamics outside and even inside the family that create those struggles. But I'm saying our obedience to Christ is key in all of those realities. We're literally watching the family being purposefully destroyed before our eyes. And this is happening because the enemies of Christ know the biblical family structure is vital to the fabric of our civilization. So those are those nine verses from Colossians chapter 3, 18 to Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul addresses those specific members of families in households because he is strengthening them. He's encouraging them. He's telling them, obey Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear God's command and obey it and trust the Lord to do what he has promised. Then in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, 
Paul turns his attention back to the entire church. Now, he's writing to the entire church because he wants the entire church to know whether you're a, whether you're a household that owns slaves or has servants or whether you're just, you're just trying to keep your doors, um, uh, a roof over your head and food on the table for your family. We are a body. We are a family. So we need to know how to pray for one another. We need to know how to pray for those households who have slaves or servants. And we need to pray for those masters so that they treat their slaves right. And we need to pray for those slaves so that they will do everything they do as unto the Lord. We don't have that dynamic today in that sense. But we do, we do work as employees or we work as employers. And so as an employee, how do you treat your employer? How do you work for your employer? How do you perform for him, for them? You say, oh, well, they're a big company. It doesn't matter. What I do doesn't really matter. Or do you do everything you do as unto the Lord? Employer, how do you treat your employees? Do you treat them fairly and justly? Do you take into consideration their personal needs and their personal struggles, and to the best of your ability, you, you try to, to help them and compensate to, to work with them? We're not talking to slaves and masters today, except that we are all called slaves of God in Christ Jesus. We're to be slaves to righteousness, but it absolutely applies to us. Because, like one of the great modern prophets said, everybody serves somebody, right? You don't know who that great prophet is, you should come see me. Or come talk to Spencer, he'll tell you who it is. So to all the church, now in Colossians 4, verse 2, to all the church, all the families and all the households and all the individuals represented in this church of the Colossians. Paul writes, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Consider what we just read. Consider what Paul just commanded wives and husbands and, and fathers and children and masters and slaves. Consider what he just commanded them. Now he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. You know what that, you know what a slave is to hear there? A slave is to hear, when I'm praying, I need to be thankful for my master. When a master's praying, he should be praying, being thankful for his slave. Or in today's vernacular, we might say, employed, when you pray, are you are you thankful for your employer? Employer, when you pray, are you thankful for your employees? They tell me good help is hard to find these days. So we should be praying for one another. We should be thankful for one another in very, very real ways. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So let's talk about prayer for a moment. A classic definition of Christian prayer uh, can be found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
it says this, prayer is an offering up to our, of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. The command to pray speaks of what we are to do and how we are to do it. The command to pray is the command to speak to God, to petition Him, to ask of Him, to confess to Him, yes, and to thank Him. We are to do that with continuous care and attention. Paul and James both indicate prayer should possess a functional constancy and energy. In other words, prayer is not what we occasionally do. It's what we are to be constantly doing. That's why Paul writes in his letter to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. In James' letter, James chapter 5, verse 16 and 18 through 18, James writes, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was just a man like us. He was just human. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This reminds me of a common complaint I have right now in my life. It's not raining. Instead of complaining about the lack of rain, maybe every time we thought about how dry it is, we began to pray and thank God that he is the one who sends the rain, who created the rain. As we see in James 5.16 and in Colossians 4.2, the mention of earnest prayer. We see this in both of these, these verses. James also exhorts us to pray effective, fervent prayers this is in keeping with Paul's command to continue earnestly in prayer. This speaks not only to the frequency of prayer, but to the care, the constancy, and the energy of prayer. In Colossians 4.2, Paul instructs the saints concerning prayer with these words, continue earnestly in prayer. In this verse, Paul offers three points. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Three points by which prayer is to be measured. We're only going to talk about one of them today, but the three points are we are to continue in prayer, we are to be vigilant in prayer, and we are to be thankful in prayer. So let's talk about continuing earnestly or to continue earnestly in prayer. The word translated continue here is an interesting word. It's the Greek word, Proskaterio. I can't hardly say that. Proskaterio <clears throat> means to preserve, to persevere in being constantly diligent and attentive toward a thing. It speaks to the direction we're going. So, to continue earnestly in prayer is to have our hearts, our minds, our very being pointed in the direction of prayer. We're to be constant, diligent, and attentive toward prayer. It 
communicates a steadfast, intense, or thus the word earnest, effort toward prayer. It speaks of a devotional, an instant readiness, a devoted readiness and attention to prayer. Prayer is something we need to be ready to do at any given moment. This word is used in other verses to describe continuous prayer and devotion to the Lord. This describes the prayer of those disciples in the upper room leading to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It describes the way the disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. So it wasn't just prayers they continued steadfastly, and it was all of those things, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Their lives were constantly, continuously pointed to and devoted to those things. That is not to be different for us today as it was for them in that day. It describes the way the apostles gave themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word in Acts chapter 6, verse 14, or verse 4. And it describes how we are to be continuing instant in prayer in Romans 12, verse 12. Prayer is to be a constant in the life of every believer. We are to be continually devoted and devoting ourselves to prayer with steadfast and diligent effort. We are to continue earnestly in prayer. That short sentence is painting a massive picture for our lives of the part prayer is to play in our everyday life, in the constant rhythm of our life. Continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it. So three things about prayer. Continue earnestly in it, be vigilant in it, and offer your prayers with thanksgiving. We're to watch in prayer. That's literally what this word translated vigilant means to watch, to be watchful. We are to watch in prayer. We're to be vigilant in prayer, vigilant in praying and vigilant in our prayers. So as we pray, we need to be watchful, vigilant, because God may prompt us to pray for something specific that we weren't thinking about praying for. We're to be vigilant in prayer. We're to be awake, alert. We're to be in a state of continuous readiness in prayer. That's what this word means. It's what it's communicating. As Jesus instructed, we are to watch and pray. This charge given here reminds us of Jesus and his apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 36 through 41. This was the night Jesus was betrayed. It was the night of the Last Supper. It was the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus goes to pray to the Father, and he commands his apostles to watch with him. I'm going to go over here and pray. You watch with me. Jesus is praying. He comes back and he finds them all asleep. They fell asleep and could not watch and they could not pray. Thus the command of Jesus to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This is the charge here, to be vigilant 
in our prayers. This charge to be watchful or to be vigilant in prayer carries with it the understanding that our times of prayer come with the temptation to become listless and lethargic, sleepy and spiritless in our prayers. That's not how we're to pray. That's not how we're to pray personally in our prayer closets. That's not how we're to pray corporately in our worship. So each week, we pray, we have a person praying, and we respond to those prayers. And our response should be loud, it should be energetic, it should be with meaning and with force, it should scare the hell out of the devil. It should. When God's people pray, it should scare the devil. It should. It should wake up hell if if it's asleep. Our prayers should wake up hell. Our corporate prayers should absolutely do that. Because your prayers are powerful. And don't ever think that they're not. Your personal prayers are. Our corporate prayers are powerful. It's why we do it. It's why we do it every week. Because we have come to understand the power of God's people praying. This is not just to fill time in the service. You're not praying these prayers and saying these responses just so we can fill some time in the service. Because you guys all know that I don't need to have anything else filling time. I can take plenty of time to preach to you every week. I don't need any fillers there. Okay? You know that. That's not why we do this. We do this because prayer is powerful. And the corporate prayers of God's people are more powerful than you or I understand. But just trust that they are. Our prayers should reflect that power when we say them, when we utter them, corporately or privately. This presents that reality that our prayers are active and powerful in our offering them to God, purposeful in what they are to accomplish, and wrought with the temptation at the very same time that they can become slothful and careless. We can become that in our continuing in prayer. And this is why this word means to continue earnestly, with energy, with diligence. The command is that when you pray, you pray in that way. That's what this Greek word literally carries with it. When you study, when you are being taught, do it with that energy, with that diligence. When you pray, do it with energy and diligence and power. This is what's being communicated here. Paul is instructing us, as Jesus did, to guard against those temptations, and to continue earnestly in prayer. And then he says that vigilance to watch against that temptation. So we continue earnestly in prayer, be vigilant in it. And then he says, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving in our prayer. Prayer must always be offered with thanksgiving. 
and we can see and we can offer earnest, fervent prayers. We can attempt to be watchful and vigilant, but thanksgiving is an essential ingredient in prayer. Thanksgiving must be part of our prayers. Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If we're not offering thanks to God in our prayers, our prayers have no wings with which to reach the throne of grace. In Hebrews 13, 15, the sacrifice of praise, which would certainly include prayer, is described as the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Here in this verse in Hebrews chapter 13, we see prayer, praise, and thanksgiving linked in coming before God. There is no real prayer, there is no real praise if there is no real thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God is linked to earnest, vigilant prayer for this very reason. Prayer must always be with thanksgiving. Our prayers can not only be about our wants or even our needs. They certainly rightly are about those things, but they can't just be about those things. Prayer with thanksgiving is prayer that recognizes what God has already so graciously given and what he seeks to give. If we're only focused on what we don't have and what we need, then we're not focusing on what God has already given us. Which means if our prayers are only focused on those things we don't have, then we're not thankful for anything. Because you can't thank God. You're not thanking God for what you don't have. You're thanking God for what you do have. So when you pray with thanksgiving, that inherently means that you're thanking God for what he's already given you. That means you're seeing, you're recognizing, you're acknowledging all that God has given you, given you, and you're thanking him for that. Do you see how important it is to pray with thanksgiving? Because it helps us see what we're very often blind to because we're only focused on what we don't have what we do need that we don't have, what we do want that we don't have. Thanksgiving helps us see properly a fuller, rounder picture. It helps us to see all that God has given us that we can be made blind to. Don't let that happen. Pray. Continue earnestly in prayer with vigilance. Being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Then Paul, in verse 3 and 4, Ask that the saints pray also for us. Meanwhile, while you're praying for yourselves and thanking God on your behalf, pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So in Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul is encouraging the saints to pray for him and those working with him. Pray that a door be opened, that God would open a door. So prayer is not only 
to be about our own needs, our own wants, but the needs of others. And we're not only to pray for ourselves, but we're to pray for the needs of others. And there is nothing more needful, I think as Paul points out here, than the need for the gospel to go forth, for a door to be opened for the gospel, for the word of God to go forth. And Paul prays that, he says, pray that that door be open and pray that when the door is open and I'm given the opportunity to speak, that I will speak it well. There is no greater need than the need for the gospel. Only the gospel of Christ can save a person from death. Most fear physical death, but it's eternal death and eternal separation from God that man should fear more than anything. And the gospel gives to us the only remedy for that death. In Colossians 4, 3 through 4, Paul is asking the church to pray specifically that a door would be opened for the gospel, that God would present an opening for the word, and that word would be spoken effectively. Paul would speak the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ that Paul's referring to is the mystery of salvation, the mystery that Jew and Gentile are all saved in one, in Christ that there is now no longer Jew, there's no longer Greek, there's no longer slave or free. There is only Christ, and Christ is all and in all. This is the mystery that Paul talks about in Colossians. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it in Ephesians. So he says, pray that I may speak the mystery of Christ. A focus of our continuing prayer must always be for God to open a door for his word. We pray for the work of the word. We pray that the work of the word uh, would, would enable us to speak the mystery of Christ, to speak the good news of salvation to any and to all. We don't hold back. We speak it. We proclaim it to any and to all. And the promise is that any and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the power of the gospel coupled with the power of prayer. This must be a major point of our praying, that the gospel would go forth in our lives, in the lives of others, in the life of the church. When we offer our prayers, we offer them to a sovereign God. We offer up our prayers thanking him and trusting him knowing that his will shall be done. Some people call that fatalistic, but the Bible simply calls that faith. When you pray, believe. When you pray, believe God's will shall be done. And then trust his will, even if it's not your will that you want done. That's faith. Faith is not trusting your own will. Faith is trusting his will, even when his will doesn't match your own. And prayer helps align us in our will with God's will. We're not moving God to our position. Prayer moves us to God's position so that we're lined up with him, so that our will is his will, and his will is our will. And we can pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that it is in concert, that our will is in concert with his God has poured out his grace upon us in giving us his son. 
to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We deserve the wrath of God, but in our stead, Jesus took that wrath that we deserved. He took it upon himself in his body on the cross. He poured out his lifeblood to take away, not just cover, but to take away our sin and to make us holy and acceptable to God. And all of this is his work of grace on our behalf. And it is all grace. It is nothing of us. We come to his table each week to remember and to proclaim that grace by remembering and proclaiming his death. Christian, trust in Jesus. Obey Jesus. Trust him for your family. Trust him for the church. Trust him to bring the healing and the restoration that only he can. Trust him and obey him. Christian, welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus.